Hi everyone, welcome back to Brand 2020. In this series, we examine Japan's attempt to brand itself, to project that brand image outside of Japan, and also inside to Japanese voters and to people who just live here. My guest today is David Russell, who is an author and a man about many different facets of how Japan works. David, welcome again. Thank you, Tim, glad to be back. Today I want to explore a little bit about Keiretsu, the Japanese conglomerates that kind of, uh, in the past, really molded and controlled how J the Japanese economy worked. It's a little bit of a dead horse, but it's an issue that you examined in, uh, a long time ago in, in quite a bit of depth. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, it was my very first published book, and um, I mean that goes back a long time. Uh, maybe 25 years ago, I did a book called Keiretsu, and it won all sorts of awards because at that time, the Keiretsu issue was a huge issue in U.S.-Japan trade relations. The structural impediments talks, right? Exactly. It was a very People big People trying deal. to figure out why is this place so hard to crack? How come we've been knocking on the door, we're doing all of the things that the Japanese say we should do, we set up shop there, we hire people, we invest money, and it just doesn't seem to work. So just to start from the beginning, what actually is a Keiretsu? That's a good question, Tim because keiretsu are not well understood. Even in Japan, they're not well understood. And overseas, they're widely misunderstood. And they have been misunderstood for decades. Mm -hmm. In general, a keiretsu is a group of independent companies. Uh, they share a single corporate governance structure in the sense that they have a, a meeting of the presidents of each of the top companies in a group. And the, maybe once a month, all the presidents will get together in what's called a shachokai and they have very often cross-shareholdings, not the way they used to, but they, used, they traditionally have shareholdings of each other's shares. Um, the, uh, the big horizontal keidetsu always have a bank in the middle of this group, mm -hmm. and so they're very connected through uh, economic connections as well as interlocking directorships, so they're personal relationships right. between the companies, and that means it's more than just a uh, sort of happenstance collection of companies. It becomes a real corporate group. Right. It's it's a unique feature of, of the Japanese corporate economy, isn't it? Or it's, it was at one time. We like to think it's unique. It's not as unique as we would wish it. But we, it's not quite a monopoly either, right? It's, no, not at all. Right? Not at all. It's a, it's more like a vertical integration. It's it's. It depends. There are different kinds of keidetsu. First of all, there are horizontal keidetsu, which I just mentioned. Horizontal keidetsu, there used to be six big ones. They all had a bank at the center, and then there would be trading companies and mining companies and metal companies and various companies in the groups around the bank. And those, they look like a giant solar system. And then there are vertical keidetsu, where individual members of those horizontal keidetsu that were involved in manufacturing. So right. think of the auto companies, Steel, the camera companies, electronics, the electronics companies. Glass. Underneath right. each one of those major companies in the horizontal keidetsu, there would be a manufacturing, a vertical keidetsu that could go down anywhere from 5,000 to 30,000 companies. So each of those vertical keidetsu was part of a big horizontal keidetsu. We're talking about a huge chunk of the Japanese economy. Right. Where did this start? I mean, it, it seems to be something that feels very Japanese when you, like you and I, we've, we've talked about this endlessly for many, many years. The U.S. government has kind of struggled with how to deal with it. Eventually, it became out of favor. It was basically outlawed, and now we have a different situation. But where did this, this concept or this kind of design actually emanate from? Well, it's fascinating. In one sense, the Kadetsu were created by the U.S. government. 
and most people don't look at it that way. But the fact is, if you go back in history, the Keidetsu, it's always said the Keidetsu evolved from the old Zaibatsu. And without going into a long historical explanation, the Zaibatsu were 19th century conglomerations of businesses that all were started, owned by one family. Right. They were family oriented. Where did that idea come from? They just copied it from the US and Europe. They wanted to have Rockefeller-style businesses and Morgan and Carnegie-style businesses in Japan. And the mm -hmm. government liked that idea because it looked like a good way to catch up with the West. So the government was not in the antitrust business in the 19th century. They were, okay, you want to put together a bunch of companies, you want money, we'll loan you money, build up an, an industrial combine, that's great. We mm -hmm. think that's terrific. We'll look more and more like the Western countries we're trying to catch up with. Long story short, uh, the Zaibatsu grew and grew and grew, and they grew more powerful to the point where in World War II, they completely controlled Japanese industry. Mm -hmm. And again, the government helped them to and take over too. other industries. Right. Yes, absolutely. They, um, they had many, many politicians in their pocket, and this became a big point of contention mm -hmm. within the government and within other, other parties in Japan that were not happy with the Zaibatsu, including the military. But again, long story short, the war ends, they were uh, outlawed, MacArthur right? and, the, and SCAP come over here, and what happens? They see the Zaibatsu as one of the key factors leading up to the war. Your fault. Right. It's the fault of the Zaibatsu. They're really one of the key players that supported the military mm -hmm. in their imperialistic drive overseas. So by definition, the Zaibatsu are bad, and we have to get rid of them. Right. But they lost a little bit of their, their energy, didn't they, halfway through? They got rid of some of the larger ones, and the, then the, the Korean Wars heated up? Yeah. What happened is they, uh, they banned the Zaibatsu. Uh, in fact, during the, during the war years, the Zaibatsu had already become so much out of favor with the military that it were already changed changing their names. So for example, the big Zaibatsu banks no longer used their real names. Uh, Mitsubishi Bank became Chiyoda Bank, things like that. Mm -hmm. These policies continued. The, the uh, general headquarters, the occupation forces, literally banned the use of the Zaibatsu names. Mm -hmm. They squashed all the big Zaibatsu companies. Some of the biggest ones were the trading companies. A good example, Mitsubishi Shoji, the big right. trading Still in company. existence, though, Still right? Still in existence. But what happened is they, it was like hitting a giant blob of mercury. They broke up Mitsubishi trading into 170 different companies. Mm -hmm. And within a few years, all those little pieces of mercury started coming together like the Terminator growing right. again. All of a sudden, the blob got bigger and bigger. By 1952, the year the occupation basically packed up and went home, there were only four companies in, of the old Mitsubishi group together. Mm -hmm. And of those four companies, basically within a year, they all merged and they called themselves Mitsubishi Shoji. Right. So right back where they started. Mm -hmm. So yes, the occupation did a terrific job for a very short time in trying to break up the Zaibatsu. And they passed all sorts of laws saying, we should not have too much economic concentration. The year after the occupation goes home. They're passing new laws trying to promote economic concentration in various industries. Sure. Well, Japan was still pretty much on its knees at that point. They needed Very an engine so. to kind of get things going. The Korean War was kind of in exactly. full, full swing and exactly. a lot of uh, material was there coming was a, out of Japan. As you know, there was, well, you remember those days clearly, but there was a lot of concern in Washington that uh, after the, uh, the communist revolution in China, that Asia was ripe to go red. Yeah. People were terrified, and we need Japan in, in, as a bulwark against communism spreading. Right. And so we've already got a good foothold in Japan. We basically control their government. We wrote their constitution. Let's make sure that Japan never slips into the communist arena. Mm -hmm. So what do we do? We start unwinding some of those 
overly zealous um, antitrust laws that we had and the anti-monopoly laws, yeah, maybe we were just, we went a little overboard on it. And so gradually, well, not so gradually, really, they started to unwind a lot of what MacArthur's people had done in 1947. Mm -hmm. By 1951, it was already starting to come apart. And the Japanese got the message very clearly. What you're telling us, not too explicitly, is it's okay to reform the Zybots. Right. And so that's just what they did. The groups came back together. They brought out their old names. Once the occupation packed up and went home, they said, hey, you know, we're a company that, that did trading in the old days as Mitsubishi Shoji. Now we're going to call ourselves Mitsubishi Shoji. Come right. on, let's get back together. All the other companies in the group say, hey, we can use our old names. Mm -hmm. The group's using its old name. The bank is using its old name. Hey, it's the same old guys. Let's all get back right. together again. We are an independent country once again. Right. We can create the laws. We can make the rules. Let's, let's get back. Let's get business exactly. done. And so in that sense, the American occupation by its laissez-faire attitude in that sense, or late in 1951, 1950, they allowed the Kadetsu, encouraged the Kadetsu mm -hmm. to grow. Again, the growth of the Kadetsu was a key factor in the growth of the Japanese economy. Sure. Really, one of the things that accelerated economic growth. Right after the war, Japan's major business was exporting silk and cotton and importing as much cash as they could get their hands on. Within a decade, they're exporting cars, cameras, electronics. How did all that happen right. in such a short period of time? A lot of it is because of the power of the Keidetsu unification. Right, never in human history has that kind of economic miracle happened with a defeated nation coming back on and coming out with a roar. It's an amazing story. It, it really is. is an amazing story. It's been studied again and again and again, and I think we never get tired of it. There are always more wrinkles yet to be brought out. But. So the Keiretsu had a, a big hand in that, but it seems like uh, recently the, it is not a, something well, things that have people changed even a lot. talk the, the next step in the story, what you were talking about before, about the, uh, the Keiretsu keeping out foreign competition, um, that was understood even back in the 50s. They were talking about that. As late as 1970, we have someone like Miyazawa Kiichi, who later on became prime minister. At that time, he was the Miti minister, mm -hmm. minister of international trade and industry. He gets up in front of the diet and says, we need a cadetsification of industry. We basically need to pull the wagons into a circle and keep the foreigners out. Mm -hmm. We don't want foreign intervention here. We don't want people buying up Japanese companies. Because 1960s, 1970s, U.S. companies are starting to get some muscle, they're starting to run into, they have some cash, and they want yep. to start buying companies around the world. Mm -hmm. And we don't want any M&A here in Japan. If, the, if we're going to have M&A, we'll do it ourselves, we don't need foreigners. And so the, the word was, let's use the Keidetsu to keep people out. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, yes, the Keidetsu were exactly what they were being charged as by the U.S. government 10 years later. You see a, a little bit of an echo of that even now when we're studying a lot of different things about contemporary Japan, immigration, for example, labor law policies, the, the treatment of women and, and bringing them into the, the workforce. It seems like there's, a, there's a, a, an overlay here that is about being Japan and protecting Japan and, and promoting the Japanese spirit in spite of the constant invitations of foreigners to participate too? Yes, right? well, that, that's a much bigger issue, but yes, absolutely, there's always been a sense of cultural protectionism, which has bled over into economic protectionism, and that's been, I mean, as long as Japan has known there's an outside world. Right. Uh, and I don't think it's ever going to go away. It's, it's an island country. Mm -hmm. It's perfectly natural for them to feel like, you know, we're, we're a small country, we have no resources, we need to protect ourselves any way we can. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense of, very strong sense of cultural identity that you don't find in, for example, a country in the middle of Europe that's bordered by 20 other nations. That's Here true. They're, they're, right. 
floating along in the Pacific. And uh, yes, there's a very strong cultural identity that they want to protect. Right. So from uh, Zaiba to, to Keita, to, it's not a clear step. But a lot of the main corporations here, they still bear their, their names. I yes. mean, not Suntory, not uh, Sony, because those were created in the recent past, but Mitsui's uh, Okra, a lot of these houses, and they're basically, they were formerly houses, you know, family owned, have kind of transitioned in. They're huge conglomerates and Certainly. they participate in, in uh, Japanese economy in a e huge way. Even the old Zaibatsu groups still exist. There's still a Mitsubishi group. One of the big differences that I should have mentioned earlier in the transition from the Zaibatsu to the, uh, the Keidetsu is that the Zaibatsu were originally, I say in the 19th century, they were family owned and family run. In the 20th century, they were family owned, but they were run by professional managers, right. which is a big change. And that was carried over into the Keidetsu era. Mm -hmm. What they said was, we're not going to be family owned and we're not going to be run by family members. There's not going to be a handing down from father to son. So what happens is these companies are now managed by professional managers, and that's the system that we have today. But they still have, even as independent managers of independent companies, they still have this sense of group identity. Right. And group sharing is much easier than competing. Mm -hmm. And so it's much, many, many years ago, I talked to a representative from a, I think it was Mitsubishi Motors, was saying to me, we never have to worry about our sales figures because anytime our sales look like they're a little low, everyone in the group will buy our cars. Right, we just ask, you know. We go to the bank and tell the bank, oh, we're a little short this year, and they tell everybody in the group, uh, buy some cars, order some right. cars from the, the car company. Right, so in, in kind of understanding this, for, for many foreigners, they describe trying to, to be comfortable and, and acculturate themselves to Japanese society. It's like going through an onion. You keep going through these layers. And there, there are some layers that are just kind of impenetrable, but you can still live, you can still have a business. But I, I get this sense that you're, you're dodging the issue about Keidetsu and where they've gone and how they've, how they've evolved now. So kind of what's the story now? What's your take on well, how Well, the Keidetsu have changed a lot. There's no question. Uh, the basic structures remain in place, but there have been so many changes in Japanese business. You know very well. In the last 20 years, business has changed. The landscape has changed dramatically. Last eight years, so seven of years. The, yeah. of the original big six Keidetsu, uh, the big six Keidetsu were, you know, basically Zaibatsu-oriented, the you know, the Mitsubishi, the Mitsui, and the Sumitomo families that ran the Zaibatsu and later the key Keidetsu. What happened? Well, Mitsui and Sumitomo, back at the beginning of the century, merged. Two ancient rivals merged to form one major bank, mm -hmm. right? One of the big mega banks now. And what did they do? Obviously, Sumitomo was a very, what should we say, strictly run group. Didn't go so well, did it? Uh, well, there's what still they growing pains. Well, Sumitomo's had its its challenges, but Sumitomo's a very well organized, very tightly run group. And you know, back in the bubble days, uh, you know, Sumitomo Bank was run by a very, very mm -hmm. strong, some would say, draconian kind of of uh, chairman. And the bank had total control over the Sumitomo group. The group members still maintain their group name, their company names. It's Sumitomo, this, that, and the other thing. Very, very strict thing. Uh, but they merged with Mitsui, and they just the bank merged with Mitsui. And then, of course, Sumitomo being Sumitomo, they said, okay, now all the other related companies mm -hmm. in the group, they have to merge as well. So what's happening is two Keidetsu are like two giant galaxies coming together and slowly becoming one giant organization. Right. So that's a big change. Mm -hmm. uh, DKB, Daichi Kangyo Bank, used to be one of the major Keidetsu. And Sanwa Bank used to be one of the major Keidetsu. What happened? Mm-hmm. You know, Sanwa became part of what's now Mitsubishi UFJ, and uh, DKB became part of what is now Mizuho. 
And so the whole landscape is changing. Right. Right. If these big keiretsu are centered on a bank and the banks now merge with a rival bank, what do you do? Right. So things have changed dramatically and I think they're going to continue to change. Mm -hmm. Another big change is because of the economic problems Japan faced in the 1990s, uh, the banks were not able to continue this long-term massive cross-shareholding. Right. They needed to sell shares to raise money. And so one of the key glues that held together these cadets was the bank owns our shares, we've got to own the bank's shares. The bank started saying, you know, we don't need that many of your shares, we're going to dump about 50% of our holding. That's a radical right. change. And right. so as the the whole shift of cadets becoming a little bit less strict, a little bit less... Uh, by the book kind of thing. We're still friends. We're more like a club now, mm -hmm. and we're a little less like Tywin Lannister is running the organization. It's it, things have become a little a little looser now. Right. But there are still cadets of connections. And coming back to your other point, yes, when foreigners come over here, they very often don't understand right. that, and they don't understand the historical connections behind these companies. Mm -hmm. You know, if I want to do business with Kirin Beer, what do I need to know about Mitsubishi? Nothing. Right. They think, well, that's a huge mistake in mm -hmm. Japan. Why should I know that Nikon belongs to such and such a corporate group? It makes no difference. I'm only doing business with Nikon. Well, that's, again, a big mistake. Right, right. Students of contemporary Japanese politics and industry like David and I are always wondering and interested in how things are today, where they came from. The Kadetsu system is one of those that you need to understand to figure out how things are working today. A lot of these issues we're going to continue to explore here on Brand 2020. Stay tuned.